Hear the word of the Lord, Ephesians 5:15 to 33. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He Who loves his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Every anniversary, Jack tried to do something special for his wife, Lori. And they were country music fans, so on their 23rd anniversary, they drove over from California to the country music festival in Las Vegas. And during the festival, they were there with some other couples. They heard what sounded like firecrackers going off. But then Lori felt something whiz by her body, and the air was moving right next to her, and, and something she'd never experienced before. And so, so, so she realized these were not firecrackers, that somebody was shooting. And uh, when they realized that, her husband said, get down, get down, get down. And so Lori lay on the ground, and her husband Jack lay on top of her. And he said to her, I love you, Lori. And then she felt his weight get heavier. And others around said, roll him onto his side, because she was screaming and he wouldn't respond. And there was blood everywhere. And then they realized that Jack had been shot. Now, Lori, they ushered her off, and then she couldn't even find him for a while, but the next morning she realized that he was at the coroner's office, and he had died. He had shed his blood to save his wife. And when she was interviewed later about that, she said that this was not unusual with how he always was. She said, I knew every day that he would protect me and take care of me, and love me unconditionally, and what he did is no surprise to me. And he is my hero, she said. Now Jack's example is an inspiring one as we turn from the theme of last week, the role of the wife, the Christian wife in marriage, to the role of the Christian 
husband. And we find in this text, when Paul turns to the husband, he gives us two instructions. And those two instructions have to do with the exact same thing. Love your wives. And he tells us two ways that we're to love our wives. And the first one is that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Last week we learned that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And so, in a vacuum, we might think that all that has to do with is authority. And of course, there is authority. But now we we learn how Christ acted as the head, what He did as the head. And now we learn that the head laid down His life for the body. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. This is the model for husbands. What did he do? As the head of the church, he laid down his life for the church. That's how he exercised his headship. That's how husbands, Christian husbands, are to exercise our headship as well. And last night, uh, last, not, not last night, last week we saw what had gone wrong back in the garden after the, the couple had sinned. We saw that instead of ruling together over the world as equals and as partners, they began to try to rule over each other. Your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. You will desire to control him, but he will rule over you. So I want you to notice how this transforms that curse. And how it harnesses the superior physical strength of the husband not to dominate the wife, but rather for her benefit, for her good, for her protection. It transfers, it translates, it it transforms this he shall rule over you into he shall lay down his life for you. Now, because we are all husbands and wives, but I'm speaking to husbands today, natively selfish and self-centered, this command will always be for us a goal and it should be a prayer. This is a prayer I pray constantly for myself, that I would love my wife as Christ loved the church. And that will, as long as I live in this life, be a goal because I have not and will not attain to that. And by the way, husband... If you say, well, I do that. I love my wife as Christ loved the church. I've had a few husbands actually tell me that. That means one of two things. Either they are vastly overrating their own performance, or they are vastly undervaluing the love of Christ. Because when we get a glimpse of the love of Christ and what He did for us, who He was and what He did for us, then we will not glibly say, oh yeah, I, I do that. I love my wife in that same way. So, so husband, let this be your prayer and let this be your goal. I want you to notice something here. Still in verse 25, it says that he gave himself up for her. That is to say, Christ died for the church. Died for the church. This is very similar to what Jesus said about his death back in John chapter 10 when he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd 
lays down his life for the sheep. Now, oftentimes we say things like this, that Christ died for everybody. And there are verses in the New Testament that focus on the universal impact of Christ's death. Second or First John chapter two verse two. He is the propitiation not only for our sins but for the sins of all the cosmos. Hebrews chapter two uh, verse nine. He tasted death for everyone. But we need to be careful that we distinguish exactly in what sense these verses mean. Because in the the fullest sense, as the substitute. For the sins of others, Christ did this for His sheep. He did this for His church. So can we say that Christ died for the world? That's, that's, that's okay to say that. The world indicates that, the, the word indicates that He is the Savior of the world. But when we get very specific about what Christ's death actually did, then we need to recognize that it is for those who believe in Him. Think about it this way. Let's say we have a soldier, and he is with five other soldiers, and they're in war, and they're gathered around in a tight circle talking, and then all of a sudden, the enemy launches a grenade right into the middle of them. And if it goes off, then all of them will be either killed or badly wounded. And one of those soldiers, reacting quickly and thinking quickly, casts his body on that grenade, and it explodes He's killed instantly, and his blood is splattered on all his companions, but their lives are spared. Now, you can imagine that in the funeral of this soldier, one of the commanding officers will say something like this, He died for his country. And that would not be untrue. He did. He died out of love for his country. He died in favor of his country. He died to protect his country. But then those five men would get up and say, Well, he may have died for his country, but I want to tell you something in a much more significant way, in a much more personal way, in a much more effective way. He died for me. His blood covered me. His blood spared my life. And that's how it is with the death of Christ. Can we say that, yes, he died in favor of the world? Of course. But can we say that he died for me? Only if we believe in Him. And so, if you want Christ's death to cover you to save your life, not not vaguely, generally, to be in favor of the world, then you need to believe in Him. He gave His life for His own. He gave His life for the church. He gave His life for His sheep. He is the substitute, the one who bled and died for those who believe in Him. This is the meaning of the death of Christ and the effectiveness of it. And so believe in Him that that His death may not just be a, a general love for the world, but your substitute and your salvation. Now, that's the for whom. That's the for whom. And in verses 26 and 27, we have the for what. That is, the purpose of Christ's death. And here it is, the purpose clause, verse 26. He gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And here the image is of a a bride adorned for her husband. And so why did Christ 
die for his people. That is, what is the purpose of Christ dying for his people? It's to beautify his people. It's to make his people lovely. Now, Paul doesn't spell out the implications for husbands, but, but I think they're, they're obvious here, and we're on solid ground to, to understand that he's saying, husbands, that's your purpose as well. That's your purpose as well, to beautify your wives, to make them more lovely. Now, we, we tend to fall in love with our wives and marry our wives because we find them to be beautiful. We find them to be lovely. And yet here, if we think about Christ and the church, Christ did not lay down his life for the church because the church was so lovely. Christ did not lay down his life for the church because the church was so beautiful. Christ laid down his life for the church, gave himself for the church to make the church beautiful, to make the church lovely. And that's what happens. That's what happens in the church. That he's, he's making us more and more beautiful to present us to himself. But that's what happens in marriage as well. You know who are the most lovely wives around? The loved ones. That's what love does. Love makes lovely. Love beautifies. Just like we saw last week, that's what happens with husbands. If you respect your husband, guess what? They get more respectable. If you stand in awe of your husbands, they get more awesome. If you love your wives, men, your wives will become more lovely. You want to have a lovely wife? It's in your hands, husband. Love the one that God has given you. Now, um, this is this is the purpose of Christ dying for the church, and this is the purpose of husbands. And this is a good check: are our wives becoming more and more lovely? And and of course, I'm I'm not I'm, I'm putting aside the question of the, the the changes that come physically speaking. Probably none of us are getting better and better looking as we get older. That's not the focus here. Is your, love, is your wife becoming more and more beautiful, lovely, radiant, because you are pouring your love into her? That's the first comparison. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. The second one says in verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This looks like kind of an anticlimax, doesn't it? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he says, love your wives as you love your own bodies. That seems like a step down. But this second variation of the command to love our, love our wives is, is very, very practical. And I see two purposes here in Paul emphasizing this second aspect. And one is this. It's very practical because... It's, it's, it's really a variation of the command back in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. But instead of neighbor, he says wives. And instead of selves, he says your own bodies. And then he goes on and explains. He says, verse 29, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So this is very practical. Husband, what do you do naturally? What do you do for yourself naturally? You take care of yourself. You look after your own needs. Your body has needs. And you very naturally, without anybody having to tell you to do it, you look after your own needs because of that self-love that is built into all of us. That's something you already do. And it's saying, 
You want to know what to do? You want to know how to love your wife? Well, look at what you do for yourself and do all that for her. If you have needs and you take care of your needs, look to your wife's needs and take care of your wife's needs as well. And there are two words that are used here. Two words that are used, and they are nourish and cherish. Verse 28, verse 29, No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Now, nourishment, we often think of that as physical nourishment. And yes, husbands should make sure their wives have enough to eat. In many places in the world, that might mean that the husband goes hungry so that the wife can eat. That probably doesn't mean that in our context, but if it got to that, that's what it means. But uh, it also means to nourish her and to feed her spiritually, to, to help her to grow in her faith in Jesus Christ. This, this, um, there's an interesting passage in 1 Corinthians 14. It's a, it's a rather difficult passage, as many passages in, in, in 1 Corinthians are, because we're getting the answer, but we don't know what the problem was. And Paul says, well, about this, and then he gives the answer, but we don't know. It's kind of like Jeopardy. He gives the answer, but we have, and we have to figure out what was the question. And what we can surmise in 1 Corinthians is that there was a great deal of disorder in the church. There were people who were disorderly in their use of spectacular gifts. And there were some women who were out of control as well. And so Paul was, was trying to help the gifted ones to, to order their giftedness. And he was also trying to help the women to be respectful and orderly in the church. And in, in 1 Corinthians 14.35, he's telling the women to be quiet because it seems like they're, 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 they're taking over and they're, they're being, being scandalous in the, the public worship. And he's saying, calm down women, be quiet, and if you want to learn something, ask your husbands. Now, there are many, many things that, that we need to study about that text, but I just want to focus on the husband aspect because we're talking about husbands. What does Paul presume there? What does he assume? He assumes that if the wife goes to the husband and says, would you tell me about this or that from the Bible, that the husband will either be able to answer or will know how to get the answer. In other words, he assumes that the husbands are doing all they can to nourish themselves on the Word of God so that they can also nourish their wives on the Word of God. Husband, if your wife comes to you with a Bible question... Can you either answer it or know how to find the answer? There's the challenge. The, the idea is not to hold the wives back. Not at all. He's saying, let them learn. Women keep on learning for sure. And your husbands should be a resource in addition to the resources of the church so that you can continue to learn. That's the first term, nourish. The other is an unusual term, not common in the New Testament, cherish. Cherish, it's used only a couple times, and it's used in this context and in the other context. It's about a nursing mother cherishing her baby. That's the image we get here. And Paul says that's how we were in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. That's how we were towards you as a nursing mother cherishing her child. And he says that's how husbands should be toward their wives, treating them with great tenderness. Now, this word cherish has made its way into many traditional wedding vows, hasn't it? They go something like this. If you use traditional vows you, and you got married, you said something like this. I, man, take you, woman, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold 
from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance, and thereto I pledge to you my faith. This is the glue of marriage. This is why we have weddings. This is why we say vows to one another. Because this is the glue that holds a man and a woman together no matter what happens in life. And the husband says to the wife, I promise no matter what happens to cherish you all the days of my life. I find in the West when people either don't want to get married or they want to get unmarried, they want to divorce, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, marriage is reduced to a piece of paper. And I've heard that so many times. Well, I don't need a piece of paper. But marriage is not a piece of paper. Marriage is the glue. Marriage is the glue that holds a man and a woman together no matter what happens. And you see, when we take these vows, and especially if we get married when we're young, we don't, we don't know what's going to happen in life. Well, we never know what's going to happen in life. But this is how we look at these vows. We, we read these and we say, for better or for worse, and it'll certainly be better. For richer or for poorer, and, and, and certainly it'll be richer. Uh, in sickness and in health, well, we'll always be healthy. But then we get into marriage, and we get older, and we have setbacks. And we find that it's not always better, sometimes it's worse. And it's not always richer, sometimes it's poorer. And it's not always health, and the older we get, the more and more it's sickness. And then those vows come into place. Then that, then that glue, we find out that that glue is a super glue, and it's sufficient to hold us together no matter what happens. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. B.B. Warfield. He was a... He was a professor at Princeton Seminary, late 1800s, early 1900s. Prolific writer. I have his, his ten-volume set, and that's not all he wrote. But he got married to a young woman named Annie. And he, his career was taking off, and he was studying. He did his doctorate and did his studies in Germany. And so soon after their wedding, they, they went to Germany. And as they were out in the, the outdoors in Germany, in the mountains there, they got caught in a tremendous thunderstorm. And the details are sketchy because B.B. Warfield never gave us the details. But something happened in that thunderstorm. We don't know if his, his bride was struck physically by lightning or if the lightning just struck so close by that she was traumatized. But from that day forward, she was unable to function And it's not clear if she was unable to function physically or if she was just so mentally and psychologically damaged that she was not able to function. But B.B. Warfield, just a few days or weeks before that happened, had said something like this to Annie. I, Benjamin, take you, Annie, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part for the next 39 years. 
B.B. Warfield looked after his wife because she could not look after herself. Now, what held them together? The glue. He cherished her. He did three things in life. He could have done many, many other things in life. He was so talented, so brilliant. He taught students. He wrote books. And he took care of his wife. And that's what he would do. He would go to class, teach the students. He lived on campus. He would go back to the house and take care of his wife and write. Teach, write, take care of his wife. They never had children. She was unable to, apparently, or unwilling to. We don't know. But he never wrote a blog, a a tweet, an article about his life and about his wife and of how difficult this was, calling for prayer. He didn't mention it. What did he do? He did what he promised to do. He did what he said he would do. That's what marriage vows do. That's the glue. I promise to love you, to cherish you, until death. Now, this is very practical. How do we do that? Well, we take care of our wife's needs. What are her needs? That is our job for the day. And Paul, we're going to talk about unmarried people next week, I guess, but he talks about unmarried people who have a one-point agenda in life. Please the Lord. And he talks about married people that have a two-point agenda in life. Please the Lord and please your spouse. Now, here's a practical way to do it. Figure out what your wife's needs are and take care of them like you do for your own. But there's another reason why this second comparison here The second comparison grounds the comparison that we've been working with here between marriage and the relationship between Christ and His church. And Paul does something here that is really quite surprising. He says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Verse 29, Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What? What do you mean it refers to Christ and the church? It refers to marriage, Paul. We looked at it back in Genesis. Jesus said this refers to marriage. Now, what do you mean it refers to Christ and the church? But now he's making this connection that's grounding this whole section. He's saying that that verse in the Old Testament, that verse that we've been working with to describe marriage, a man will leave independence. A man will cleave permanence. A man will uh, become one flesh with his wife, fidelity. Those principles of marriage are actually a mystery. Now, we need to understand what mystery means in the New Testament. Mystery for us is something we can't understand, right? That's a mystery of science. We don't understand how light can be a wave and a particle at the same time. It's beyond us. Uh, It's a mystery. We can't understand it. In the Bible, in the New Testament, a mystery isn't like that. A mystery is something that was hidden and now is revealed in Jesus. Let's go back to the same book. Uh, Ephesians 3, verses 4 to 9. Paul says this, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ 
Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What's he saying here? There were many things in the Old Testament that we just didn't get. They were there, but we didn't get them. They were they're obscure, they were hidden. And now Christ comes, and now all is revealed, and now we understand it. And Paul is saying, marriage is one of those things. We've had marriage since the beginning, but we didn't get it, because it was pointing at something bigger. It was a model for something. It was a, a picture of something else. But now Christ has come. Now the, bride ge- the, the bridegroom gives his life for the bride, and now we say, oh, now I get marriage. Marriage is not just about a man and a wife. Marriage is about Christ and the church. That's what it points to. The mysteries revealed. And so... Paul could quote this this verse about marriage and say, but I'm really talking about Christ in the church because that's what marriage is all about. And what this means is this. Practically speaking, we cannot understand the meaning of marriage until we understand the relationship between Christ and His church. We cannot understand the depths of marriage until we understand the good news of the gospel of Christ giving Himself for us. So, husband, where do you start? Here we have this command laid out, and I've already said this is a command that we'll never realize in this life. But where do we start? Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Start with Christ. Start with Christ. You need to understand Christ. You need to believe in Christ. You need to focus on Christ if you're going to love your wife. And then, then husbands sometimes look at this and say, well, that's, that's just too big, and it's actually not very fair. I mean, that's to give me a, a command like that that's beyond my ability and that I have to do this for my wife, that, that seems so unfair. And I've had husbands complain to me about their wives many times and say, why is it? Why is it? She's never wrong. She never asks for forgiveness. Uh, she, she, she's always putting everything on me. Why do I have to put up with this? Why do I have to bear it? Why does it always come back to me? Why is it always on me? And the answer to that is, Because you're the husband. And it was all on Christ. All the bad behavior of the church fell on Christ. It wasn't His, but He took it on. It became His. He took responsibility for it. That's why it's all on you, because you're the husband. And if you don't want it to be all on you, then don't become a husband. And if you're already a husband, then you need to realize that's your role. Your role is to play towards your wife the role that Christ played for the church. Now, this is difficult in any circumstance, but it's more difficult when we lose our affection for our wives. And this often happens in marriage. Oftentimes, couples grow apart because of the difficulties of life, because of the ravages of age, because each of us change because of the pressures of children, the pressures of finance, the pressure of moves, the pressure of jobs, the pressure of taking care of parents, the pressure of whatever it might be. And couples often move apart in their affection for one another. And then a husband hears this, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And husbands will come to me sometimes and say, you know, I, I just don't, I don't love my wife anymore. And I say, oh, that's so great that you're admitting that from the get-go. You're giving me so much hope. 
Because you're coming and confessing your sin right off the bat. And they say, no, you're not understanding me. What I'm telling you is I feel no affection for my wife. And I say, don't worry about that yet. What you've told me is you're not loving your wife. So let's work on your your job. Let's work on your calling as a husband. And you know what? Here's something I've discovered. Here's something I've discovered in these 35 years of marriage. And it's this. The more I love my wife, the more I love my wife. And what I mean by that is this. The more I, I stop pouting over some perceived slight, the more I, I stop, stop protecting myself from, from uh, the possibility of getting hurt or from disappointment, the more I stop just looking after myself and start thinking about my wife, and no matter what I might be feeling, no matter what might be going on in my life, the more I, I focus my attention on her, the more I try to look after her needs, the more I try to lay down my life for her, the more my affection for her grows. And that's what I mean. If you're, if you're lacking in affection for your life, then love your wife. And you know what you'll end up doing? Loving your wife. Having affection for your wife. And this is, a, this is an application of that amazing principle that Jesus said. Very simple. And he was talking about money. But he said, where your treasure will be, there your heart will be also. And that... That's talking about money, but there's an astute principle there that applies to other things as well. Wherever you place your your value, whatever you treasure, your heart will follow. And so, husband, if if you're, you're lacking in affection for your wife, if your affection for her has dimmed over the years, then treasure her. Treat her as your treasure, and you will be amazed that your heart will follow your treasure. We talked about awesome husbands last week, didn't we? Wives, stand in awe of your husbands so that they might become awesome. Husbands, love your wives so that they might become more and more lovely. Let's pray. Our God, teach us about Christ and the church. We have not begun to fathom the depths of your love. The depths of Christ's love in giving himself for us. And that's reflected in our marriages. That's reflected in our love for our wives, our lack thereof. I pray, O God, for our husbands, for myself, for the husbands here today, for the future husbands, that you would give us a vision of Jesus and of what he did for the church, and that you would so fill us with that that love of Christ for us, that you would give us love for Christ, and that we would be able to turn to our wives no matter what is happening that day, that year, or in our lives, and that we would be able to love them, to lay down our lives for them, and that we would be able to look after their needs, even after we look after our own. And we pray, O God, my prayer for my marriage, my prayer for our marriages, is that people would behold them, and even if they don't know anything about Jesus, that they would see the gospel lived out in us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.